working our way through a series. We're, we're closing in on the end of it. They'll, this is part 21. There'll be probably 24 or 5, somewhere in there, in this series. The book. How we got it and how to get the most out of it. The last little while, we've been looking at this passage in Isaiah... The one who trembles at God's word. And when you read uh, the passage, of course, you see that phrase. It seems very important when the Lord speaks that through the prophet. So it's Isaiah 66, 1 to 4. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I look, he who is humble, contrite in spirit, and trembles at my word. So there's the title, the one who trembles at God's word, and that's how it fits into this whole series about the book how we got it, how to get the most out of it. It's trembling at God's word. And then the change in the text, verse 3, he who slaughters an ox is like one who kills a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like one who breaks a dog's neck. He who presents a grain offering like one who offers pig's blood. He who makes a memorial offering of frankincense like one who blesses an idol. And what you'll notice in those couplets is the first part of each of those statements is something God commanded. So so, um, slaughtering the ox, sacrificing a lamb, presenting a grain offering, making a memorial offering. Those are things that they were commanded to do. And yet somehow the, the second part of each couplet is something grotesque, something that doesn't fit. And so when, you, when, when they first heard this word from the Lord through Isaiah, when we read it today, we're, we're immediately uh, forced, led to ask the question, how can something good and ordained of the Lord, how can something positive become so ugly? I mean, that's what those couplets do, right? They take something positive, and then they say, it's, it's, like, it's like this. And so immediately, we're all encouraged to say, how? How does something that God actually requires, and people do it, that's obedience, I thought. It's obedience when God tells you to do something and you do it. How, how can it be that it's offensive, and ugly, and wicked? It's a brilliantly set up text because, because uh, it, it just leads us into that conclusion. When, when is obeying God a bad thing? Right? I mean, when have you heard that in church? Why? Halfway through verse 3 is where we stop. These have chosen their own ways. Well, well, not if they're, if they're offering the sacrifices, oxen, lamb, grain offerings, memorial offerings, 
what do you mean they've chosen their own ways? And the, and the prophet means when, when they're not doing these things, when they're on their own time, they do their own thing, and that makes these good, commanded, obedient, religious observances offensive to God. It's really an amazing passage of Scripture. They've chosen their own ways. Like, they, they don't just sit in church like this on Sunday night. They go home. They watch what they want to watch on TV. They visit the Internet sites they want to visit. They have the friends they want to have. They spend their money on what they want to spend their money on. They live their own lives. They do their own thing, and that makes everything they do here offensive to me, God says. Wow. Four. I also will choose harsh treatment for them and bring their fears upon them. Because when I called, no one answered. And when I spoke, they did not listen. But they did what was evil in my eyes and chose that in which I did not delight. There's a sense in which that third verse... uh, gives meaning, especially that one phrase, they have chosen their own ways. So we've been studying verse 2 in quite a bit of detail, what it means to tremble at God's word. And verse 3 kind of defines it. It's, It's because their ways were their own ways, chosen their own ways, when they were out of the temple and off the clock, in terms of religious duty. They just, they just did their own thing all the time. They weren't thinking about God when they weren't making their offerings and sacrifices. They weren't, they weren't considering him. And we shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that when they weren't in their acts of religious uh, devotion, they were, they were doing just really, really... Abominable things. It doesn't mean that when they weren't offering their sacrifices, they were, they were abusing children or robbing banks. It just means they, they, were, they were just doing what they wanted to do, mindless of God. They, and that's, that's the first part of the text. They thought God was contained in that house. Where's the house you're going you're gonna to box me up in, God says. They just they compartmentalized. They chose their own ways like Adam and Eve chose to eat a piece of fruit. Have you ever stopped? Theologians talk about original sin. We talk about the fall. The Bible talks about how all of nature, the world of nature, is twisted and bent with earthquakes and floods and disease and and. and and there's human wickedness, there's war and bloodshed, there's catastrophe. And we say it's because of the fall. What happened in the fall? Well, um, they, they, they ate a piece of fruit. Does that make sense? What, what made that so terrible? Well, what made it an abomination is God, God told them not to do it. So, so, original sin, it just continues in the same form to this day. It doesn't always manifest itself in, 
in blatant uh, perversion and wickedness. It's, it's that doing our thing on our terms. This is, this is the definition of sin. And it explains, it explains why all around here, our culture, Newmarket, Toronto, it explains why the surrounding culture can't understand either God or sin very well. Our world doesn't understand how we can all be sinners when, look around you, there's a lot of relatively decent people who don't lie, swear, cheat on their spouse. They're, they're philanthropic, they're generous with the poor. <laughs> what do you mean? How can these people be sinners? They give blood at the Red Cross more than you do. How can it be that these people are, are so wicked and our world doesn't understand why acts, all acts, are defined as holy or sinful to the degree that they line up with what God has requested, what God has ordained. So sin is self-rule. Everything, here's the definition, get this. Everything that expresses independence is under the wrath of God. All right? It doesn't have to be sexually immoral. It doesn't have to be violent. Everything that, everything that expresses Don Horban's independent acts, independent of a creator, the good things that I do, that are independent of the creator, all of that is what sin is. The verse we've been drilling down into is that second verse. All these my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble, contrite in spirit, trembles at my word. What we did last week is we went pretty quickly over five signs of trembling at God's word. Let me just, I'll just review fast. A, a heart that trembles at God's word sees the authority of God in everything that the word says. And I read that text from Deuteronomy 32, 46 and 47. Is that in your notes? Okay, good, good. The important part there is that 47th verse. After all of these commands, all of these things from, from the hand of God to the people, and then Moses says, 47, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. So, heart that trembles at God's word sees God in it. Not, not a religion, not a philosophy, not just a way of life. It sees God. B, a heart that trembles at God's word will never form a case against immediately performing God's word. I'll look at that a little bit tonight. C, a heart that trembles at God's word takes seriously the judgment of God upon those who disregard his word. This is where we looked at the prophet Jeremiah in the fifth chapter of Jeremiah. Especially the 22nd verse where, the, where God speaks through the prophet and says, Do you not fear me? Declares the Lord. Do, do you not tremble before me? 24. They do not say in their hearts, Let us fear the Lord. So no concept of, of consequences of disobeying God. D. 
The heart that trembles at God's word knows the depth to which he exposes the motives and schemes of the human heart. And this keeps someone who trembles at God's word. I will be growing in that kind of an attitude. If I, if I remember how God um, sees so deeply in my heart that he sees my motives, not just my actions, that he sees where I've hidden sin even from myself. That Hebrews 4.12, the, the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Uh, it should, it should make all of us in this room right now walk humbly before God to consciously remember that he knows absolutely everything about us. Every thought that just wisps through your mind that you weren't even trying to think about. Everything that's rooted in pride. Everything that's rooted in anger, even if you keep your voice soft. Everything that expresses covetousness. Every moment I don't love him with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. If... Here's, here's my conviction. If people could see every, every thought, motive, and desire that has ever slipped through your unguarded moments and your name wasn't attached to it, but everything about you, inwardly, they would never recognize it as you that they see in church every Sunday or me that they see in church. If, if people knew, take anyone in this room, and if people knew every single thought, motive, desire that has ever been in your life, if people knew that, they would never trust you to babysit their kids. Think about it. So if the heart that trembles at God's word knows the depth to which he sees and knows all the schemes of the human heart. And E, five, the heart that trembles at God's word is constantly taught and drawn by God's unbelievable grace. Blind, phony Christians merely take God's grace and run. Genuine disciples who tremble at God's word are stunned and humbled that God could reach into their hearts with forgiving mercy and promise. So, those are the five key signs of a living, soft, humble, trembling heart before God's word. They, they are the real meaning of that overworked term. Everybody in the media talks about spiritual people. I'm a very spiritual person. Unless they mean this then they're miles away from anything the Bible means when it talks about spirituality. What I want to do now, there are people who don't possess that kind of heart and aren't troubled by it. They, they still don't perceive themselves as spiritually dead or lifeless. 
and they would be insulted if you told them that. My question is, if they don't possess this kind of heart, why do people still claim an imaginary spiritual life? And here's the reason many people do. It's because there are, there are other... There are other indicators that look like spiritual life, but aren't. And they've never been taught the difference. I want to look at three traits that are commonly taken for a trembling heart before God's word, but which aren't. So the three things I want to say, a trembling heart before God's word isn't just an emotionally moved heart. A trembling heart before God's word isn't just an agreeing heart. And thirdly, a trembling heart before God's word isn't just a convicted heart. That's where we're going in the next little while tonight, those three things. So point number one. There's a difference between a heart that trembles at God's word and a heart that is merely emotionally moved by what it hears from God's word. Acts 24, 22 to 25. Paul before Felix. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, when Lysias the tribune comes down, I will decide your case. And then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody. That's Paul. But have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, And he sent for Paul and heard him speak about his faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. It's a fascinating account. Several things are important to notice about Felix's heart. First, he had an understanding of the truths about Christ Jesus, and he felt comfortable discussing them. That's in 22 and 24. Having a rather accurate knowledge of the way. 24, he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Jesus Christ. So Felix, Felix knew about the way, which is the term quickly given to converts to Jesus Christ. Interesting. Not people of of the mindset or the philosophy, the way. They saw that where they were going, what they were about. So Felix had an accurate knowledge, a correct knowledge. His thinking was doctrinally correct. And he liked to discuss these things with someone who he thought might know more than he. Our text says he sent for Paul, verse 24, with the, the desire specifically to Hear Paul speak about faith in Jesus Christ. That's a quote. So Felix knew Paul wasn't some foggy-minded dreamer, some romantic religious fanatic. He had respect for Paul and his beliefs. Maybe he had heard Paul. We don't know. Maybe he had seen miracles performed. He liked what he saw. So Felix, he had this understanding... He wanted to talk to Paul. He knew about the way. He arranged it so he could sit and discuss this with Paul. The second thing you'll notice is Felix sensed that Paul was telling him the truth. And he sensed his own guilt. 
See that 25th verse? And as he, Paul, reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. So, so in other words, Felix, he not only knew what Paul was talking about in the sense of collecting information, he, he, even if he didn't want to admit it, he felt the truth of what Paul was saying. And Paul started talking about the judgment, and Felix felt the weight of that. This wasn't just some cold, detached study for Felix. It says he was, he was alarmed. Felix heard alarms go off when he listened to Paul. Is his heart trembling at God's word? No. No. For all of that, Felix pushes back against what he hears. He, he sets up his own tug of war with the Holy Spirit. And that's the important point. Here's how hearts are measured. It, it's not just the initial positive interest or the intellectual agreement. That proves nothing. What counts is the level of commitment. What, what counts is the level of buy-in to what Paul is saying. Think about it. In sending Paul away, Felix shows there is something he's more afraid of than missing out on God's word. Otherwise, he wouldn't have sent him away. Maybe he's afraid of the political cost of fearing God. Maybe, maybe he's afraid of what following Christ might cost him financially. But at, but at some level, he's afraid of co committing, buying into the truth that he hears. There's something more important to him right at that moment. In other words, his heart trembles more at something else. And that makes him willing to procrastinate. And he does what all religious people do when God's word cuts into our own agendas. He pretends he's going to hear more seriously later on. Come back later. We'll, we'll talk more. Sure. There's something he fears more than he fears God. So it's not just being emotionally moved. Two, the heart that trembles at God's word is different from the heart that merely agrees with the truth content, the doctrinal content. If, if you, like I, are... Uh, a second or, or third generation Christian, we have to constantly, and I mean constantly, probe our hearts because, because we have a terrible tendency to measure ourselves by counterfeit spiritual standards. We, we, we can learn the habit of measuring inward spiritual life by a, a checklist of correct beliefs. Correct beliefs are important. They matter. But they aren't exactly the same as spiritual life. I get that from 
thinking through what James says in 2.19 where he, he talks to people in the church and he says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. There's trembling for you. They shudder. I think the King James actually says tremble. I'm not sure. Doctrinally, demons would qualify for membership in any church. They believe in one true God. Here's something interesting to think about. Demons never worship false gods. They never bow down to idols. They lead people to worship idols, but they aren't that stupid. They know better. The only God they believe in is the true God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Demons believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. You don't have to guess about that. The scriptures are clear. Matthew 8, 28 to 30. When he came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men came to meet him, coming out of the tomb. So fierce, no one could pass that way. Behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know who Jesus is. They know exactly who he is. And they see... They see his absolute power over the forces of hell. They don't want you dwelling on that. But they know all about it. Thirdly, they believe fully in the biblical doctrine of judgment. It's, it's in that same text, Matthew eight twenty nine. Have you come here to torment us before the appointed time? They know all about that. Time, that appointed time. They know that there's that day of judgment coming for themselves and all who forsake God. And they believe all these things so fully that they are visibly shaken by the force of those beliefs. Demons believe that and shudder. You ever been so cold that your teeth just kind of shudder? Get that picture. In spite of all the similarities between the reaction of the heart that Isaiah describes as trembling at God's word, they're not the same at all, and kind of brings us to where I want to start wrapping this teaching up, the heart of it. There it is, the rain coming down. It's going to clean your car, it's going to water your garden. Demons tremble but not out of love. It's just raw fear. The heart that the Lord describes through the prophet Isaiah is a heart that trembles at God's word out of love for God. The, the heart that loves God, trembles at his word, is a, heart that, is a heart that fears grieving him, is a heart that fears toying with him. It fears grieving God more than it fears anything else. That's the essence of what I would call spiritual maturity. I still remember the day my dad pastored in Prince George, B.C. from 1960 to 63, almost 1963. 
Uh, it was uh, Prince George back then was just a, it was just a lumberjack town. When, when we moved there, there was a parsonage. True story. I don't think I've ever told this before. This is an absolutely true story. When we moved from Fort Erie, Ontario to Prince George, BC, my dad accepted the call to Prince George over the phone. Never went out there, ever. Uh, Carmen Lynn was the district superintendent in British Columbia at that time. And off we went. Packed up everything in the Rambler station wagon, drove to Prince George, British Columbia. We got there, we were all very excited. Mom and Deb were unpacking the car. Of course, the four boys were just little. And we ran up the stairs, there were two bedrooms. We came back down the stairs out to where Mom and Dad were and said, where are our rooms? And my uh, dad said, well, you go up the stairs, there's two bedrooms. You're two on one side and two on the other side. And we said, no, no, there's, there's people already in those rooms. We didn't, we just said it just like that. There were some uh, people who had been on the street, and I guess somehow had gotten into the house, and they were sleeping off whatever they were sleeping off. There was two in this bed, two in this bed. Well, my mother just freaked out. We just said, no, there can't be our rooms, because those ones are already occupied. But I still remember we had been particularly bad. It was a very rough town across from where uh, the parsonage was joined to the church. There was an empty, big empty field. And there was an, I've, I've told you this before, there was an old, almost falling over, kind of a dilapidated shack. It was never used for anything. It was just weeds growing up inside. And we were fooling around in there. I won't go into the details, but, well, we, it, we burnt it down. <laughs> and... My dad did something very different. My dad marched the four of us down the stairs. There was a coal-burning furnace, coal-burning furnace. Down the stairs, and there was Mom. She had the washing machine where you had those two. Anybody remember you had the two roller things, and that's how you wrung out the clothes? Careful not to get your hand in there. And my mother was down there where it seemed she always was, washing clothes, for the four boys. And dad marched us all down into what it really wouldn't, it would be a cellar more than you would think of a basement today. And my mom was in the corner cleaning the clothes and she was crying at the fact that she was raising four future criminals. And my dad marched us downstairs and made us all line up. Paul, the oldest, Peter, Ed, dawn and we had to stand before mom and say we're sorry we were so bad and apologize and promise she believed us promise that we were going to be better as we went upstairs dad said to us before we went outside he said I hope that's a lesson for you I think that that's the kind of punishment to see that you've broken your mother's heart, and that is the punishment. We went outside, and we sat down on the steps, and the first thing the four of us said was, Whoo! you know, that Dad had chosen that instead of sending us all to meet Jesus right at that moment. Now, what he was hoping for, and what we weren't mature enough to have, he was hoping that when you love someone and you see you've grieved them, 
that that would be the kind of thing that would motivate better behavior. And the point there is, that's, that's the mature response. Not just to fear, you know, the beating that was to come. But to fear grieving someone you love. We argue our way out of rules. That's not a trembling heart. We can do things behind the back of any supervisor. And that's not a trembling heart. But when our hearts tremble at grieving the one we love the most, then, then you start to pursue holiness because rooted in love for God, you actually prefer pleasing him to not pleasing him. You are less likely to cease pursuing holiness when your greatest desire is to please the Lord you love. Do you know why my dad did that to us? It didn't work at that point, but you know what he was trying to do? He was trying to make it so we would be good even when we didn't think we'd get caught, right? This is the reason for so many surface changes and temporary conversions. The foundation never gets laid right at the very beginning. People can be temporarily moved for all sorts of reasons. To start thinking about God and wanting to please God. There, there can be temporary fear of the Lord because a loved one is sick, near death. And the fear of losing them drives us in desperation to make all sorts of promises to God. There can arise a temporary fear of the Lord. My teenager is going wild. Goodness knows I better get serious about Jesus so he or she will have a better example to follow. There can be the, the fear of major financial ruin or setback. I should start tithing. Maybe God will prosper me and bless me. The list can go on and on and on. But what's missing in each example is that simple fear of the Lord. A heart that trembles out of love for him alone and that fears Losing him more than it fears losing any other relationship, any other goal, any other ambition. And then you're finally at the place where you start to understand why the Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you understand what that fear of the Lord is... The fear of the Lord, Psalm 11, is the beginning of wisdom. And all who practice it have good understanding. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Fear of the Lord is measured by what you fear losing most. If, if you don't instantly obey the Lord because of what your friends will think, then you don't fear the Lord. What you fear is losing popularity. If you don't make up with your spouse when God tells you you should, then you don't fear the Lord. You, you fear losing position, pride, authority, freedom. The fear of the Lord is revealed in what you fear losing most. When there's a price tag attached to following God's word, and there's always a price tag, 
is, is the price too high? That's, that's the question. That's the question that reveals, do you have a heart that trembles at God's word? That's the question that reveals it. Let's pray together.